about uh, the art of accomplishment tonight, the art of accomplishment. I don't think I'll spend too much time on this section, but <clears throat> this little section I've thought about over the years, and there's a very powerful principle in here if you grasp it. It's very powerful. So starting with Luke chapter 8, uh, verse 18 through 21. It says, Take heed, therefore, how ye hear, for whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and whosoever hath not from him shall be taken even that which he seemeth to have. Then came to him his mother and his brethren, and could not come at him for the press. And it was told him by certain which said, Thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, My mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. So the art of accomplishment tonight. Somewhere within pop culture, it has been said that there is no try. There is either do or do not. However, each of us have had the experience of setting forth to accomplish something and failing, right? We've all tried something. We set forth to do something and we failed. We've probably all experienced failure. Anyone here not experienced failure? Okay, no hands. So um, <clears throat> effort was expended, but accomplishment did not result. We tried. Man, I can't believe my voice is this <laughs> This has been happening to me for like three or four weeks now. Every time we sing, and then I've had to drink water, and, which I don't have any water, and uh, it's been enough to be able to get my voice back. What's that? You've noticed that too? Oh, drop it down a step? Oh. Drop it down. Okay, so um, I want to tell you guys uh, a personal thing that I went through on this particular uh, lesson. A number of years ago, a friend of mine invited our family, called me on the phone, invited us to a special service. It was in North Highlands, in fact. And um, <clears throat> I said to him, I said, um, you know, our Sundays are pretty busy but I'll try. And so, you know, I was up early that Sunday morning and came to church, you know, got out of here a little bit late, went home, and I was tired because usually Sunday mornings I'm up really early. So I just wanted to take a nap, and I just felt this conviction. I just felt like I told my friend that I would try. And there's no reason why I can't go other than I'm just really tired. Am I really trying? Has anyone here ever said, I'll try to do it? But your word try was just to get you off the hook a little bit. You really had no intention of really doing it. You said, I'll try. So that way you had your little escape, right? That excuse for failure. Well, you know, did you really try? So the Lord was really convicting me about that. And being familiar with this lesson, um, this is called the art of accomplishment. Now, here are eight 
spiritually motivated, hence uncomfortable definitions of the verb to try. Listen to these. Number one, limiting your faith in such a way as to make doing impossible. You say you'll try. Well, while you're limiting your faith, the second one is believing that doing is unlikely or even impossible. You think it's not likely that it's going to happen. So, or maybe it's even impossible. There's no water? Thank you. Watermelon, strawberry, bolt. I'm going to give it a go. Maybe this will help my throat a little bit. Somebody give a testimony real quick. Nobody? Oh, that feels better already. <clears throat> God is good. What else, Michael? What else, Michael? He's omniscient. What else? <clears throat> He's omnipresent. What else? What's the first one? Because it applies to all the other seven. That's the eighth one. First one is God is absolute. And with all the attributes, he's absolutely love. So you would add absolute to all of those. <clears throat> Thank you, Cindy. That's already helping, I can tell. It feels better. Um, so did I read the second one? Yes, I did. The third one, diverting definition of to try from a spiritual perspective. Diverting energies from obtaining the resources required to do. The fourth one, not expending enough resources to do. You say, I'll try, but you didn't, you know, extend enough of your resources to make it possible. The next one, expending resources too inefficiently to do it. The next one, expending resources inappropriate for doing and expending resources on the wrong tasks. Last one that I'll read is expending resources upon unclear, vague, or ill-defined goals. Oxford Dictionary Online defines the word try as to make an attempt or effort to do something. So when you say, I'll try, do you really try? Do you really try it? So um, <clears throat> the art of accomplishment is never practiced by those who try. The thinking which allows one to speak of trying is almost a guarantee of failure. The very terminology of trying implies the probability of failure. At its best, it speaks of noble efforts in impossible causes. Holding out some dim hope that the willingness to throw away the resources will motivate a miraculous intervention. But the willingness to try garners no praises from the Lord. 
Those who will try receive no attention from him. His mother, as we read in that opening passage, and his brethren tried to come to him. And uh, these people, his mother, his brethren, were not strangers to him. They were the closest earthly relatives that he had. And one might expect that such as they might qualify for some slight more regard than strangers. There were people in his presence which passed the word of the situation to him. They said, it's your mother and your kinsmen. They desire to see you. And they've tried to get through the press of the crowd, but they have not done it. They stand without. Unfortunately, that is where those who try usually end up, without, not in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the outside looking in, hoping to catch a glimpse of him whom all things are possible, but unable to because of the multitude who did what they themselves only tried to do. They got in his presence. So his response is a curious response. Maybe you've wondered about it in the past. His flat dismissal of them as though they were not important people, as if their goal and desire were meaningless and as if their efforts were worthless. He had no regard for their esteemed identities, their worthy desire and purpose, at least of all for their efforts. He dismissed them out of hand and made no effort of his own to fulfill their desire. How else could he really acknowledge those who did what he had or what they had to do in order to come to him? What manner of reward should those have if he gave to the rest the same result? Those who did what it took to get into his presence. It will never be enough to hear and desire the result only so much as to make some small effort. Has the Messiah come? Has Jesus come? Is he really available? He is available. How important is he to you? How important is the Lord Jesus Christ to you? Will you do what it takes to get into his presence? How much do you need to get to him? Do you really need to get to him? It is not the hearers who will receive the reward, but it's the doers. If someone can get to him, you can as well. He is not a respecter of persons. He is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. If you seek him with your whole heart, you will find him. Luke 5, 18 through 20, it says, Behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy, and they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they gave up and went home. Oh, wait, no, I misread that. They went upon the housetop, and let him down. Let's give them all a hand. They finally arrived. Thank you. 
They went upon the housetop and led him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto them, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. They couldn't get in. There was too much of a crowd. But they found a way to get to Jesus. Luke 19, verses 2 through 6. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the press because he was little of stature. So he gave up and went home. No, that's not what it says, Sister Kathy. It says he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. Every time, and I've shared this before, I think of this passage. I think of when we were in Israel and we came to Jericho. And we went to the Zacchaeus tree, which is a sycamore tree there in Jericho. And that tree, they have aged that tree. They say it's over 2,000 years old. They don't know for a fact if that is the very tree where Zacchaeus climbed. But it was right there. And it could have been, you know. And so we got out of the bus and we were there at the sycamore tree, what they call the Zacchaeus tree. And we pondered and we thought about it while we were there in Jericho. Jericho is 846 feet below sea level. So that's pretty low. The lowest place on the earth is where? Anyone know? What is it? Is it Death Valley? I thought it was the Dead Sea. Somebody find out how low the Death Valley is. And <laughs> You have Alexa. I have Siri. Yeah. You have who? I did not even know what you just said. <laughs> so um, Jericho is about around 20 miles from the Dead Sea, which is over 1,400 feet below sea level. A very low, low place. And so one of the things that um, I've never really preached about, but I've heard preaching on it and talking about it, the Sea of Galilee, they say, is the, is the lowest freshwater lake in the entire world. We were there, and it's fresh water. And the Jordan River runs into it, and the Jordan River runs out of it. The Dead Sea, the Jordan River runs into it, but it has no outlet. And so nothing lives in the Dead Sea. And the salt content is so high that you float. And you see pictures of people with the newspaper just kind of <laughs> laying there, not even swimming, laying there in that high salt content. And I went in the Dead Sea. And I was like, you guys, I'm not even kidding you. I was like about here. I'm not swimming and I'm not touching the ground. I'm not touching <laughs> Because they were all too chicken to go out as deep as I went. 
the Dead Sea. In North America, okay. <laughs> so we have, there's the answer right there. <clears throat> so Jericho, a very, very low place, uh, and it's claimed to be the oldest city in the world. And that's where Zacchaeus was at. But Zacchaeus did not give up. He ran ahead and he climbed up into that sycamore tree so he could get a glimpse of Jesus. Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 25, it says, And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered but rather grew worse when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. I would say she was desperate. She had spent all her living on physicians and she wanted to get to Jesus. This was her last chance. If I could but just touch the hem of his garment, that was her thinking, right? And so she said, verse 28, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. So she pressed through to get to Jesus. Philippians chapter 4, 10 through 14 says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, but for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere, and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Are you able to do it? I'll try. I'll try. Well, try is an excuse for failure, right? You've heard that before. And so Jesus said, who are my brethren? Who's my mother? Who's my brethren? Those who do my will. And there's other passages of scripture. Um, one of them is Luke 14, 25 through 33. I don't know if I have enough time to read it because I was trying to get to some other points. But Luke 14, 25 through 33 lets us know what the cost of discipleship is. There's a price. And somebody who's going to build a city, he's got to sit down first and see if he has what it takes to build that city. Or if you're there and you're getting ready to go into battle and you got 10,000 people. Isn't, I think that's Luke 14. I think it said 10,000, right? And you got the army that's coming against you has 20,000, exactly double. You got to sit and you got to consider, do I have what it takes with half 
of the army that's coming. I mean, we do have the home court advantage. You know, so there's a little bit to think about there. But they're coming with twice the amount, 20,000. And then if I think that we can't do it, I get, I'm going to send some ambassadors, right? And I'm going to just request peace. And I'm going to try to see what, you know, that's the, you know, uh, we have these different scenarios that Jesus laid out. And he said, in the same way, right, you've got to count the cost of what it's going to take for you to be a disciple. Do you have what it takes to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after him? Do you have that? But not only is it saying that you must count the cost, but it's also saying that he's already counted the cost. He knows what it will take for you to be a disciple, and he has said it right there in Luke chapter 14. This is what it's going to take for you. So, will you try? You know, I think I'll try to be a disciple. I'll see if I have what it takes. Or will you do? So, the art of accomplishment. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, there's a principle here that um, you're going to have to stretch your imagination a little bit. You're going to have to stretch your thinking. You may not have ever thought about it this way before. It's just going to push you and stretch you just a little bit to think about something that's here. We can rejoice in the truth of this wonderful passage if we love God and are the called according to his purpose, that he works all things together for good. You mean that <clears throat> the bad decisions I've made, he can work those together for good? You mean my bad days, he can work those together for good? Yes. He's the only God of all the gods that people worship that I know of that can take your terrible circumstances and work them together for good. The good experiences, the good ingredients, right? The, the bitter experiences. That's why the children of Israel, they ate with the bitter herb, right? And that was a reminder to them of what God brought, God brought them for when they, when they celebrated Passover. And so it gives an ultimate sense of security to know that the almighty God is bending maliciousness of the enemy into instruments of blessing. This, we re read in the Old Testament that no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, right? It does not say that there won't be weapons formed against you. It's just that those weapons won't prosper. There might be the enemy who comes along and says, I have got this weapon. It's the perfect weapon to destroy Kylie Martinez. Kylie Nicole Martinez. And, but God has something else in mind. God is able to use that weapon for your good. And that's what I think is just so awesome. We go through some terrible, difficult circumstances sometimes. That's not, the, that's not the point I'm asking you to stretch. Most of us already know this, right? 
still getting to the point here. One who knows the fact of this promise through the persuasion of long experience is freed from fear and emboldened to obedience. Right? You know that everything God works together for good. So when he tells you do this, you're like, <laughs> it's a little bit uncomfortable. But I know he works all things together for good. So I have a little bit more confidence in obeying that. It's difficult. It's hard. It's challenging. But he works all things together for good. So as you begin to know that about him, you trust him. And so you're emboldened to do what he wants you to do. Those who accept those words without the benefit of personal proofs, acting only in response to their knowledge of the faithfulness of the Lord and his word, come into a place of confidence in their pursuit of the kingdom. There are, however, many whose participation in the promise of these words falls somewhat short of expectation. Now, here's the stretch. It is possible to love God, but not be one of the called according to his purpose. Don't misunderstand. His purpose is the voice in every calling. And his call is to whosoever will. So, it is impossible for any Christian not to have been called according to his purpose. But there's another dimension that I want you guys to see. Not all who have learned to love him are the called according to his purpose. What is his purpose in Romans chapter 8 verse 28? Think about it for a second. Too many people are content with the emotional content of the passage. And merely hope for the fulfillment of its promise. But those who love God will find themselves inevitably coming to that place where their own purposes in life are changed. Transformed to come more into harmony with his purpose. And he does have a purpose. Now, can you discern God's specific purpose from the words of this promise in Romans chapter 8 verse 28? Does that specific purpose drive your own activities? His purpose. Is that the purpose that drives your own activities? Or does it merely cause you to desire the fulfillment of the promise in your own life? If you truly love him, can you desire something other than the fulfillment of his promise? Now here is the purpose that we can discern from this promise. Try to catch this. It is God's purpose to bless with good all those who love and obey him. He wants to bless us with good. It is his purpose to make every distressing event, every tragedy, every problem culminate in as much good for his people as every triumph, every victory, and every hour of peace. He wants to work all those things together for good. The promise reveals his unmistakable motive. He has purpose to bless, and so it is that the Hebrew rabbis of ancient days pronounced him the blesser. Do you see that in that verse? Do you see him being the blesser? He works all things together for good. Can you see it? This same purpose, then, 
must also be the driving motivation in your words, in my words, in our deeds to be a blesser. You must strive to be that blesser, not just a blessing, but to be in the fullest cooperation with the avowed work of God in the lives of people, to be a blesser. You must purpose to speak and to do such things as will inevitably result in good for your fellow servants. His promise must drive your purpose. And when it does, your calling will exceed that of those who only hear a call to salvation. You will be one who is called according to his purpose. As he is the blesser, we too should be blessers to those around us. That's his purpose. Ezekiel I got seven minutes to go as fast as I can to get to right there. No, wait, right there. No, wait, right there, uh, like five pages, and I've only gone like two or three. So I'm not going to be able to make it, but let's go as fast as we can. Um, Ezekiel 22:26. it says, Her priests have violated my law. And have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. You know there's that which is holy. And that which is profane. But the priests were not making a difference between that which is holy and that which is profane. And that's a problem. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. I was talking that to that to somebody about that that I was doing a Bible study with here recently. And I was saying, part of my job is to be able to show the difference, to be able to make a difference. I feel that from this passage, that my job is to say, hey, this is holy. This is not holy. This is profane. This is clean. This is unclean. So I feel a little bit of responsibility when I read these passages. And you could see how God was not pleased that these priests were not doing that. So, <clears throat> have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Ezekiel 44, 17 through 24 says, It shall come to pass that when they enter in at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments, and no wool shall come upon them, whilst they minister in the gates of the inner court and within. They shall have linen bonnets upon their heads and shall have linen breeches upon their loins. They shall not gird themselves with any thing that causeth sweat. And when they go forth into the utter court, even unto the utter court to the people, they shall put off their garments wherein they ministered and lay them in the holy chambers. When they shall put on other garments and they shall not sanctify the people with their garments, neither shall they shave their heads nor suffer their locks to grow long. They shall only pull their heads. Neither shall any priest drink wine when they enter into the inner court. Neither shall they take for their wives a widow, nor her, nor her that is put away. But they shall take maidens of the seed of the house of Israel. Is he keeping up pretty good? Or a widow that had a priest before. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and profane and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. 
And in controversy, they shall stand in judgment and they shall judge it according to my judgments. And they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all mine assemblies. And they shall hallow my Sabbaths. That key verse is verse 23. Listen to this poem. Sin is a monster of such awful mien that to be hated needs to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. We need to love the sinner, obviously. But there is, uh, we do have to make difference between the holy and the profane. God never intended man to know evil through experience and familiarity, but to be able to discern evil with his spirit. We sometimes get things mixed up. We put, well, because we were born in this flesh, we put the body, the priority on the body, and then the soul, and then the spirit, body, soul, and spirit. But the way that it's listed by the narrator of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is God places spirit first. That's the priority. Spirit, soul, and body. And many times we feed this flesh, but we do nothing to feed the spirit. You know, that's walking in the spirit, being led by the spirit. So God gave Adam and Eve ability and power to choose to do either good or evil. Now listen, he gave ability or power. It doesn't mean that he gave them the right to choose to do evil. There's a difference. He gave them the ability and the power. It doesn't mean he gave them the right to choose or do evil. Such disobedience was forbidden with a death penalty. Genesis 2.15 says, And the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden, to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And Satan whispers into our ear, doesn't he? He said, uh, you have the right to decide for yourself. You really don't have the right to choose for yourself. That's a lie from Satan. He gave us the ability and the power, not the right. The enemy wants us to think that we have the right to decide for ourselves what's good and what's evil. Adam misused his ability to choose by choosing to disobey God and to do evil. By so choosing, he fell into bondage to sin. He died to his ability to choose and do good. He died to that. This state of bondage is described in Romans chapter 7. We're not going to get into that right now. Bondage is do, or bondage. Doing good is now outside of your ability. Definition. Doing good is now outside of your ability. The forceful restraint of a person's liberty, involuntary and compulsory servitude. We have some scriptures, and I'm going to race through them, and then I'm going to just finish this, and we're going to be done. You have a question, Nathaniel? <laughs> 
Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And verse 7 of Galatians 5 says, Ye did run well. Who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? Skipping down to verse 13. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. You know that song, I choose to be a Christian. The only ones who really have a choice are the Christians. Sinners don't have a choice. When we are Christians, we're the only ones that really truly have a choice because we're not in bondage to sin. You understand? I choose to be a Christian. And any sinner can make a decision today that I want to be a Christian. I want to live for him. And he can set you free. Romans 8.21 says, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Uh, verse 15 of Romans 8 says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4.24, which things are an allegory for these two, or for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. I think that's a whole interesting thing within itself. Mount Sinai and Hagar. Isn't Hagar like the servant of Sarah? And Hagar and Abraham had Ishmael. And he made a comparison to Hagar and Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given. So, <clears throat> but here we, we it's interesting. Two alle the, the allegory, two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, the Old Testament, Old Covenant. That's Agar, right? What's the new covenant? Promise, right? Isaac. Hebrews 2.15, And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So through Christ, we can be set at liberty once again. His death, burial, and resurrection provide a way for us to be born again and from our dead condition into life. We're going to stop right there, and we'll pick up next week on this um, talking about bondage. Liberty. Amen. 7.32. Sorry, I went two minutes past. 7.32, yeah. All right. Um, praise God. I'm going to have my sister Christy.